Well, good morning. My name is Justin Sitzma, and it is my privilege this morning to be sharing with you uh, from Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through to 34. I remember the first time the reality had settled in that my friends that I had grown up with really only had a, a cultural connection to Christianity, or in fact, some of them had no connection at all. A couple years after high school, though, I felt this deep burden kind of boiling up within me, where I saw a lot of friends that were turning back on the faith that they'd grown up in, or they were just making a lot of really poor life choices. And I, maybe codependently so, um, wanted to just keep everyone together. I wanted to bring everyone back to, you know, what I thought was this kind of perfect little bubble of, of a bunch of Christian friends. We all played in bands together. We all got along super well. And all of a sudden things were fractured. And I wanted to draw everyone back into that. I wanted to do something, but I didn't know exactly what. So another friend of mine who felt this same burden, he helped me launch a series of events. I think we only did it maybe two or three times, um, where we rented out this dive bar downtown Guelph. Uh, we invited anyone who would come, usually about 25 or 30 people, and there was some music, some kind of experiential teaching and, or a story. Um, and ultimately, it was a re-exploration of faith. It was kind of like a church service for those kind of people who were no longer into Jesus or church. And as I look back, like, it was actually kind of cool. Um, but I was 21 years old and very inexperienced and didn't know how to harness the potential that could have come out of something like that. And it kind of floundered. Um, even though we tried something different, we tried something kind of radical, um, I still felt like a failure at reaching out to my closest friends with the hope of the message of Jesus. And to be honest, 14 years later, I still feel that way. I've had the privilege over nearly a decade and a half of ministry to lead children and youth and adults to Jesus. I've had the opportunity to walk uh, people through heartbreaking, challenging situations and for them to find faith on the other side of it. And yet, a word like evangelism still scares the living daylights out of me. And I am sure, I am certain, I am not alone in that. So this morning, that's what we're looking at as we continue this series we've been on, Vocare. We're exploring from Acts chapter 17, the Christian vocation of evangelism. Now here's my hope for this morning. I don't want any of you checking out just yet if that's like, you know, the least interesting thing to you. I want you to hang with me because I think there's some really cool, some really interesting stuff that we see in this passage. And as we read, Paul takes in this ancient city of Athens. And I believe that if you track with me a little bit here, that we're going to be armed with new wisdom from the scripture on how to reach out to those around us and how to share the love of Jesus in unique ways. So let's pray before we read. Prepare our hearts, Lord, to accept your word. Silence in us any voices but, our, but your own. So that, we may, so that we may hear your word and also do it through Christ our Lord. Amen. 
So Acts 17, starting at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day, those who, had, those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others, people ask me that a lot too. Um, others remarked, he seems, to be, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and their foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it... Uh, is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands and he is not served by human hands as if he needs anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far off from any one of us. For in him, this is a quote, we'll get back to that in a second, but in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn, away, to, to turn away, to change their mind. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So for those who have never read through uh, the book of Acts, or maybe it's been a while, um, the latter half of the book of Acts of the Apostles, it highlights Paul's missionary endeavors through Rome and Greece and beyond. And at this point in Paul's missionary journey, he had no intention of going to Athens. But God likes to work in unique ways. So directly before this trip, uh, he was in the city of Berea. They were a warm and welcoming city. 
unlike the previous city he had just visited, Thessalonica. So he was preaching in Thessalonica. So we're going back a couple cities here. He was preaching in Thessalonica, and there were some Jews that did not like that he was preaching about the resurrection of Jesus. And so they chased him out of the city. And so he went off to Berea. And when he was in Berea, he started doing the same thing. He was preaching the gospel of Jesus. He was preaching about the death and the resurrection And they found out about this. And the people from Thessalonica went to Berea to chase after him and to chase him out of town. And so people, his friends, brought him safely to Athens, presumably because it's a larger city that he could be a little bit more anonymous in. And so he takes in the city. He takes in and he notices all the different things about it. Athens at this point in the first century, uh, it was still an important Greek city. But it was long past its prime. It was no longer the glorious city, this intellectual city center that it once was. They were kind of resting on their past glory. And as we can see in the text there, they're really interested in just anything. They will be open to any idea that comes their way. So they uh, are just, you know, looking at new ideas, new philosophies. They have their biases, they have their cultural lenses, but they hear something new and it automatically sparks their interest. That is just a part of their culture. That's a part of who the people of Athens were. And the first thing that Paul notices as he's walking through the city, it says that he was distressed by the idolatry that he saw. And we're talking about like idols hanging on doors and in public places. Everywhere you would go, there would be some kind of idol. Now, the word distressed or greatly distressed is only, used wor- is, is only used twice in the entire New Testament, with the other being in 1 Corinthians 13, also Paul, uh, where he mentions about love. This is kind of the love chapter. Um, he mentions about love not being easily angered. So the sense in which we should look at what Paul is saying is that he was provoked to righteous indignation. He looked at the idols of, his world, of the day and he was saddened and angered by the spiritually lost Athenians around him. So Paul does what he typically does when he goes into a city. He finds a synagogue and he preaches to the Jews and to the God-fearing Greeks about the death and the resurrection of Jesus. He goes into the marketplace as well, um, where there was some Epicureans and some Stoics, and they wanted to hear what he had to say. They kind of heard this rumor that there was this guy with some strange new ideas coming to town. Now, all of these different branches of philosophy that you find in, in, uh, in Greek thought, I'm not going to get into the details of them, but all this is to say is that they had a lot of differences in what they believed, but they were all pretty united on the fact that the concept of bodily resurrection would have been nonsense to them. The concept that Christ could be raised from the dead and that made him uh, a superior being in some way, that would have been something that they would have just said, that's, that's nonsense, I'm not interested in that discussion. But in this case, they loved his ideas so much, they were curious to hear more, so they actually decided to give him, a, quite literally, a platform. Uh, they invited him to speak at the Areopagus, this open-air high place where they would go and exchange ideas. It was kind of how they hashed out and determined truth from fiction, good from bad, if you will. It was like kind of like a free marketplace or the dragon's den of ideas, if you will. And so we're given a portion 
or possibly a summary of Paul's speech there. It's most likely, so Luke, who is the writer of Acts, who traveled around with Paul, um, he was probably given a general summary of the ideas that Paul presented to the Athenians. We know that Paul, uh, in another story in Acts, we know that Paul can be pretty long-winded sometimes, so there's a good chance we did not get his whole speech here. It was kind of a compacted version of it. He was taking the opportunity to sort of flex his philosophical muscles to connect with the people of Athens. So Paul starts his speech by making an observation that might seem a little strange to us in our world. He says, I see that you are a very religious people. And they probably would have received it and be like, thank you very much. I am. Thank you. Yeah. Um, And I think Paul had a bit of a dual meaning here. I think there was sort of a genuine desire that he was sort of bridging the gap and saying, I can tell that they are people that are hungry for the things of God. Um, And I want to just point that out. So there's that on one hand. On the other hand, um, he was, yeah, he was trying to bridge a gap for them. He was trying to kind of make a connection, uh, build a bridge so that they would see, okay, this guy's paying attention. He, he sees who we are as a people. He's not just coming in and, and uh, you know, just expounding on stuff that has no connection to us. This, this would have been far more meaningful um, than if he had just kind of jumped right into a gospel presentation of the four spiritual laws or the Romans road to salvation or the bridge diagram. Um, he actually took the time to look at the context where he found himself and he said, okay, how can I, how can I reach these people? How can I connect with them in some way? But even more than that, he notices their values, their culture, their heritage. And even though, yes, he was distressed by it, he he struggled with who they were, he did not condemn them for it. In fact, he actually quotes positively of some of their thinkers. There are these two quotes, if you read through the passage again, there are these two quotes from Greek philosophers and poets that he uses that actually one might glaze over and think you're just reading a a section of scripture because Paul often does that in his writing. He references back to Old Testament passages. But there's two sections, there's two uh, phrases. For in him we live and move and have our being. And a second one, we are his, presumably God's, offspring. These were written centuries earlier by Greek philosophers, secular Greek philosophers. Paul knew this. Paul used this, and, and, and he used what he learned about the Athenians to connect with them. He wanted them to know that, hey, I, I see the, the heartbeat behind some of your philosophy and your arts, and I want to connect with it. He is embodying, in some sense, kind of this concept in uh, 1 Corinthians 9 about becoming all things to all people so that he might win some over for the gospel of Jesus. But he doesn't, however, shortchange on the truth. He offers the information that their ambiguous religiosity is in vain, that they do not need to worship the unknown. He mentions this, uh, this tomb of the unknown God. And he says, I know this God. I can tell you about this God. Let me tell you about this God. He says, you can truly know the one true God. They don't have to remain in ignorance any longer. And he calls them to account. And he says that God too will one day call them to account with the resurrection of Jesus as this ultimate signpost of this reality. 
So this certainly would have piqued their curiosity, to say the very least. And it also was the source, probably for some of them, uh, of great derision. They would have looked at him and says they sneered at Paul about this. They rejected his claims. But some others said, they said, we want to hear you a little bit more on this. Now, there's two ways you could read that. One of them might have been sincere. The other might have been kind of like the ancient equivalent of, you know, you're talking to someone on social media and they're like, after COVID, we should totally get together. You know, it, it might be that kind of level of insincerity. We're not quite sure. But regardless, there was people that were interested. And even more than that, some believed in the words that Paul said. By the power of the Holy Spirit, they received it and gladly became followers of the way, followers of Jesus that very day. I've always loved this passage. There's something just incredibly remarkable about the way that Paul goes about his business in Athens. And I think in many ways, what we get here in this passage is a clear framework for thinking missionally today. Now, missional theology is less about missions, like we think about missions, overseas missions, missionaries, etc., which can be wonderful and really, really good. But it's, this is more about how we, as the people of God, are being the hands and feet of Jesus every single day in our everyday, normal, average context. Another word you might have heard us use at various points is the word incarnational theology. Again, this is about embodying the person of Jesus. This is not new or cutting edge or anything, but some of these words just might be helpful for those of you who bristle at a word like evangelism. And I know that some of you are out there because we've talked about it before. I think sometimes words like evangelism can evoke thoughts of a street corner, some guy with a, a very angry sign yelling at you to repent and turn to Jesus, people handing out chick tracts at the corner downtown, uh, big revival events where people kind of emotionally turn to Jesus at the, front of the, uh, at the front of the room. And so this is maybe just a different way to think about, a different approach, a different consideration and what Paul does in Athens is quite brilliant. It's thoughtful, it's truthful, it's shrewd in kind of a non-conniving sort of way, if that makes sense. And so I wonder, what might this look like for us in the year 2021, 2,000 years later? And I actually hope that this sparks some great discussion in our talk back session later. I hope you'll join us for that because I'm not the final, author the final authority in this. I, I believe I've done some good thinking on it, but there are so many other ways in which we can look at the context around us, the culture around us, and see what God is doing and look at what God is doing and, and say, okay, here's how we can approach this. So I hope you'll join us and uh, bring, some, bring some mental energy as we discuss some of these things. So here are some basic observations that I think are worth exploring. They're what Paul did and what we maybe could or should do. So the first is this, Paul exegeted the city and we also should exegete the city. Now, if that doesn't make sense, I'll explain it in just a second. So as we said, when Paul entered the city, he was distressed by the idolatry around him, but he doesn't let it get to him. He doesn't, he, so he looks to their ethos, to their culture, and he's looking for an inroad into, the, into a conversation with them. He was asking himself, where is their congruence with both Jesus and the Athenian culture? What is the good that can be affirmed here without kind of going down some pluralistic religious routes? 
It seems good to me that we might want to consider this for our own context. There's probably some things that distress you as you look at the world around you, as you look at your neighborhood, your city, your country. There's some things that you probably look and you're distressed by them. You're provoked to anger or you're provoked to just like your heart just burns for people that are lost spiritually. There are idols in 2021 in Guelph. The question is, what are they? They might not look like gods or goddesses, uh, silver or gold hanging from our doors, but they're going to take on other forms. Think about what we value the most as a city. I'm going to use Guelph particularly. If you're listening from some other region, that's awesome. Uh, Think about it for your own context, but I'm going to talk about Guelph for a moment. In broad strokes, you might say that we're a city that deeply values community, volunteerism, social justice, progressivism, spirituality, but not necessarily organized religion type spirituality, health and wellness, tolerance, prosperity, nature, etc., etc. You can look at any one of those things and see that there are nuggets of good things in them. And you can also see the shadow side and the negative side of all of them. Paul exegetes the city of Athens, and I believe that we too are called to exegete our cities. Exegesis is what preachers do after we read the scripture. So you heard me do that just a few moments ago. I read the passage. I went through the passage and kind of explained it. I studied it this week. I read it carefully several times. I read commentaries. I prayed. I wrote with the deeply necessary help of the Holy Spirit, hoping that this text will come alive in some way, in a new way. That is what we do when we do the work of exegesis. So when we exegete the city, we're doing basically the same thing. We study it. We notice. We invest in it. We pray. We seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit. We seek to bring the shalom to the city. We bring the city to life by the power of the Spirit working in and through us. This allows us to see where we live for what it really is and to explore how to bridge toward Jesus. I think about this past summer. This is just one example of many. I think about this past summer, and um, there was this uh, movement happening that is still happening, this Black Lives Matter movement. And there was a rally that happened in, uh, in downtown Guelph. And there was 5,000 people that showed up. 5,000 people in a city of 130-some-odd thousand people. That's pretty incredible. Do I agree? I was there, by the way. Do, did I agree with every single thing I heard there that afternoon? No, I didn't. Was there much that was good or even very good? Yes, there was. I saw there in that day, I saw a a hunger for justice. And the good news is that for those who don't know Jesus, God is a God of justice. God is a God of the marginalized and the downtrodden. God is a God near to the brokenhearted. And if I could have got up and communicated that to those people in that moment, that's what I would have said. And so when we think about exegeting the city, we look around at what is happening, the trends, the the things that people are passionate about, and we say, how can God intersect with that, even if we don't agree with all of it? You think Paul agreed with all of the philosophers? Of course he didn't. 
when we're willing to get a little uncomfortable, we, we meet God in very strange places. When we exegete the city, we also see its challenges and its pitfalls. In Guelph, um, I'm sure many of you are aware of this, but we have a significant opioid and methamphetamine addiction issue. It's bad and it's gotten worse over the past number of years. Addiction, many of you might know this as well, addiction is most often a response to trauma of some kind. What we can infer from that, this is important, is that the hidden brokenness under the surface that you might not see right away, the hidden brokenness is breaking beyond the veneer of one of Canada's top 10 safe cities that we've been in that list for years and years and years. And yet it is a veneer. There is deep brokenness lying under the surface that we need to look at and address and pray about and consider. You know, as it moves closer to spring, I was looking at, you know, the weather today. It's beautiful outside. It's going up to, I think it says negative five, which is like, that's better than what we've had in a long time. Maybe you might go for a walk this afternoon. I would encourage you at some point over the next couple of weeks, go for a walk. Consider a prayer walk around your neighborhood, around downtown, around Courtright's neighborhood even. You might be surprised at what your eyes become open to the themes that arise, the beauty that you might find, as well as the things that distress and provoke you. And maybe you'll get a sense of what God might be calling you to do about it. The second thing I noticed, and the rest are a lot quicker. The first one required a little bit more explanation. But the second is this, that Paul borrowed from the thinkers of our day, and so should we. Paul was an educated man. He was primarily educated in the Hebrew scriptures, but he was also a learned man and knew a lot about the cultures in which he was ministering to. He was adeptly able to pull quotes from, in this case, those two quotes that he quotes are from Epimenides and Aratus, two ancient poet philosophers. They were kind of the rock stars of the ancient world. Now, back in the day, I mean, back in the day, modern era, Christians used to kind of try to achieve this by quoting vaguely Christian sources like U2 or like J.R.R. Tolkien and Lord of the Rings um, and kind of hope that that was sufficient for kind of bridging the cultural gap. It's like, hey, we, we're involved in the culture, um, but I think we actually need to go a little deeper. I think we need to dig into asking who the people of our cultural moment are that are worth knowing today, because this is not a, a dig at you two or, or Lord of the Rings, but they're just not exactly the most hip references for like Zoomers and millennials if we're trying to engage them. Allison and I, when we were talking this week about this passage, we were actually kind of racking our brain a little bit, trying to think, okay, who are these people? Who are the authors and the songwriters and thinkers that, we, that might be people that we would say, these are the people that are part of the cultural moment that we find ourselves in? And again, this is not saying that they're all good or all uh, appropriate or whatever. A couple, dec a couple decades ago, it might have just been the Beatles, and that might have been it. They were a cultural phenomenon. But now we have... In fact, a lot of women who I think are leading the way in this. I think we thought about Lady Gaga, Taylor Swift, Billie Irish, Beyonce, that these kind of people that are leading the cultural moment. And again, we don't agree with everything, but we look and say, where are the nuggets of truth? Where are the kernels, of, of, um, the kernels that are telling us about our world and the worldview in which people are looking at right now? 
in the world of writing, we might, it might look like Jordan B. Peterson on one end of the spectrum and Noam Chomsky on the other. The point is not just to have cool songwriters and authors to quote from, to show off, but so that we know who people are drawing their worldview from so that we can connect it to the kingdom of God. This helps us to build rapport and relate to the world around us. It helps us to build bridges. It helps us to see that we're not so cloistered away from the world around us that we don't understand the world. We need to be able to speak the language of the people around us and connect it in some way to the gospel. So if you're listening and you're a parent or a grandparent or an uncle or aunt of of kids, young kids, older kids, whatever, um, I would encourage you to pay attention to what they're listening to, what they're reading, what they're watching. Not so that you can condemn it if it's not to your liking or you don't think it's appropriate or whatever. That's another conversation that you need to have but so that you can grow in your understanding of our ever-evolving, rapidly changing world, to ask questions about what they find good about it or beautiful about it, to be curious rather than to condemn. I, my daughter Iris, she loves watching you know, YouTube kids and finds these bizarre YouTube channels that I just do not understand why. She likes to watch these little like people that just spend like, you know, but 10 minutes per show playing with dolls. Like, and they're just literally playing with dolls. And I, I often try to ask her, because I think it's really silly. And I try to ask her, what do you like about this? And she usually says, oh, it's funny. I like it, you know? Like, but I, I just, I hope I can keep that conversation going as she gets older and starts getting into something that's a little bit more conversation worthy. Thirdly, Paul spoke with boldness to the idolatry. And we too should speak with boldness to the idolatry. So so Paul spoke with this great authority to the Athenians. He doesn't pull any punches. He he calls them out on the futility of their idols, and he calls them to account for it. Paul doesn't just do this to get a rise out of them. He's not interested in just being a controversial person, and he's not someone who just automatically enjoys conflict for the sake of it. He does it because he is burdened by the gospel. I love this quote from Alan Crider, who is an Anabaptist theologian. He says this. He says, I'm not suggesting that we make it our business to stir up trouble for trouble's sake, but there comes a time when it is right and proper to start an argument with the idols of our age. And I particularly love the way he phrased that. He says, start an argument with the idols. He's not saying start an argument with the people. Of course, people are the ones that you need to discuss with, but I like that it kind of depersonalizes it ever so slightly, that we're, that we're arguing ideas, not like someone's, the summation of someone's you know, personality or whoever they are, right? I think that's important. So can we too be willing to speak with boldness to the idols around us? I'm not suggesting that we have some speech crafted in our back pocket that we can pull out when it's like, okay, this is my Areopagus moment. I'm going to pull out my speech and I'm going to say, I don't think that that would be necessarily effective in Guelph today. Because while the gospel does not change, the way it's communicated and transmitted does change. You even see Paul, as he bounces from city to city, his approach varies greatly. This open-air forum that he spoke on, the, uh, the Areopagus, is quite an interesting concept, though. It's just this place where we can have a free exchange of thought and ideas, and I can't help but wonder if we have something kind of like that in our world today. 
Um, I think we call it social media, where we have the free exchange of ideas. If you're watching this on Facebook or YouTube, uh, you, are, you have the opportunity to engage in social media. You can write in the comments right now and say, Justin, I thought that was a really dumb point. Don't say that again. You know, like you can, I won't see it till later, so it's going to be too late. But um, this is a free place to show our ideas and our thoughts. And there's some wild stuff out there, but there's also some really good stuff out there. We can use social media responsibly as a way to communicate the heart of God for people, as well as speaking truth in love to the idols of our day. Now, just a word of caution. Speaking with boldness to the idols of our day works really well when there is trust and relationship built, and it works really poorly when there is not. The response we are most likely to get if we kind of just give an unsolicited gospel presentation is most likely going to be something to the effect of, who are you and why do you think that you get to share this with me? Guelph is kind of this tolerant but guarded city, I find, that it's sort of like this you-do-you culture, whereas Athens, they were just more directly open to just hearing whatever you had to say. I don't think that that is a part of our cultural moment today, in my view. Lastly, Leave the rest up to God. This is so important. Leave the rest up to God. This is the hardest part for some of us. We want to manage outcomes. We want to know that if we're going to invest all this work into uh, exegeting the city and building relationships, that God is going to draw all these people to himself. But most of the people at the Areopagus rejected Paul's message. We get two names plus some others uh, that were receptive to his message and ended up following Jesus. We don't have the exact number, but it clearly maybe wasn't even what Paul was hoping for or expecting. We must do our parts and we must do it with excellence and with all our heart and our soul, but we are not the agents of salvation. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. We cannot coerce or force anything. In fact, British missiologist Leslie Newbegin, he says, when coercion of any kind is used in the interests of the Christian message, the message itself is corrupted. So when we need to trust, we need to trust in the sufficiency of the message of Jesus. That Jesus, the Son of God, came to dwell among us. That he died a death on the cross for the sins of the world and rose on the third day, showing us that he conquered death once and for all. When we truly trust in Jesus, we truly know that Jesus is good news. And if we truly know that Jesus is good news, I can tell you, friends, that we are not going to have an evangelism problem any longer. So I want to leave us with that question this morning. Do we, do I, we need to personalize that question, do I truly know that Jesus is the giver and the bringer and the embodiment of the good news? Think about that for a moment. We become evangelists for all sorts of things in our world, from everything from brands of laundry detergent to sports teams to books and songs. And Jesus is far more worthy of our praise and far more worthy of being shared. Just before I close, something related to this um, that the Lord has laid on my heart is the possibility 
Uh, this is just one tool, one method, but the possibility of running some online alpha courses over these, uh, over these next number of months. During a time when a lot of people are still really isolated, some people may not have the connections that some of you have, like where you kind of have a small group that you're doing Zoom with and whatnot. There's probably a lot of people who are feeling still very lonely. I can't help but wonder if there's a beautiful opportunity here to reach out to people and step in. Because it's all online, it's a really simple, simple process to lead and guide. And what I'd just love to know is if you're listening this morning and something is burning in your heart, God is stirring something in your heart to do something, I would encourage you to please reach out to me. Just shoot me an email. It's justin at courtrightchurch.org. Um, I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to talk with you about whether or not that's something that you'd be interested in because Alpha has been proven for years and years and years to be an incredible method to just have conversation, have spiritual conversations about Jesus. So if that's you, would you just reach out to me? And with that said, I'm, I want to pray. Lord God, we thank you for this word. We thank you that you have given us Paul's example and Paul's witness. We pray that you would give us strength as we look to, uh, as we look to um, exegete the city around us. Would you give us wisdom to do that well? Would you speak to our hearts as we try to love you and show the world your love? We pray this all in your name. Amen.